If you were here and you remember last week, I began by asking you the question, what do you desire most in this life? And I'd like us to keep thinking about that. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, your flesh is not inclined to desire God or to do His will. Our desires are naturally misplaced desires. As Christians, though, we have a spirit in us giving us new desires, yet we still feel the pull of our fleshly desires every day. Galatians 5.17 captures this daily battle inside us, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As God's children, we want to please God in everything. But, we, but the desires of our flesh, they're so strong. The pull is so strong and, and, and our flesh distracts us from following the Spirit. Now, I prove this when I drive. I have imagined missiles coming out of the front of my car blowing up the other drivers on the road, blowing them to pieces. Why? Because in those moments, I forget the gospel. I forget the gospel. I forget that I'm crazy and in need of God's grace. I forget that God has made me a new man and has put a new heart in me and has given me new desires and that I am no longer enslaved to anger, but I am free to respond with grace and patience and love in all circumstances. I get angry naturally. No one taught me to get angry at crazy people. I just do. It's in my heart. When sin rears up, we don't have to justify ourselves. We can't. See, Christ has already justified us through his blood. And so we cling to him and we receive the grace we need to put our sin to death, to live free of its control. God is very kind to change our desires through Christ. Listen to the hope of Christ in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus Christ delights in God. He delights in God. He has the desires of God and he graciously shares with us the heart and the desires of God, his desires. When we delight in and depend on Christ, he gives us his heart and his desires every day, every day. And I think that this is a foundational truth to help us understand 1 Timothy 2. Verse 4 tells you exactly why praying for all people is good and pleasing to God. Verse 4 tells us what the content of the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings should be. Verse 4 tells us what kind of heart and desires God has and what heart and desires God gives us. Verse 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the heart God puts in us through Christ. So 1 Timothy is telling us to do things that we don't naturally want to do and we can't do apart from Christ. We don't naturally want the well-being of other people 
especially their salvation. Neither will we pray for it until God's grace moves us to pray, until we connect the gospel uh, that the gospel says God gave us a new heart with new desires and the power to do that, which pleases God with our prayer life. There's a connection. Our identity in Christ as men and women redeemed by God's grace informs our prayers. So my goal today is to do three things. Number one, show you the heart of God, the heart that you and I don't naturally have. Number two, show you what God has done through Christ who has the heart of God. And three, show you that by trusting Christ, God will work to conform your heart to His. And we're operating from the main point from last week. The gospel creates urgency in the church to pray for the salvation and godliness of others so that God is glorified and pleased in the advance and application of the gospel in all of life. Please pay attention to this. How you interpret verses 1 and 2 hinges on why you think Paul added verses 4 through 7. It is the compassionate and evangelistic heart of God revealed in verses 4 through 7 that explains the content and trajectory of the prayers Paul urged in verses 1 and 2. God is pleased with evangelistic prayers because he is an evangelistic God who saves and desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In order for us to obey verses 1 and 2, God must give us his heart that we see in verse 4. So this message is just a continuation of last week. We're just picking up and continuing to go. Uh, next week will be the same thing. So, so let me do this. Number one, let me show you the heart of God, the heart that you and I don't naturally have. Let's start with verse three. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right there is the heart of God. God has a compassionate and evangelistic heart God wants people from every tribe and language and people group and nation to be saved to know him. That's God's heart. Verse 3 shows that evangelistic prayers are good and please God. Why? Because God is Savior. Why did Paul add God our Savior? Why would he even put that right there? He was highlighting that God is a saving and rescuing God. And if you work back from that, you see precisely why God would be pleased when his people pray for the salvation of sinners. Now, we could stop right there, not go any further, and understand from the context that God is pleased with evangelistic prayer. But Paul went further. He continued with verse 4, explicitly telling us what kind of heart God has, which applies directly to the prayers that Paul urged. Now, as we unpack verse 4 and see the heart of God, I need to alert you to the fact that verse 4 has caused much controversy among Christians. Mm. And with that, we pray. No, no. <laughs> I can't run from these. I got to pray what's, or, or preach what's in the text. No small controversy among Christians from verse 4. One study note said of verse 4, this statement figures prominently in theological disagreements over the extent of the atonement. On the one hand, verse 4 is not difficult to understand. 
On the other hand, it pertains to important and complex biblical doctrines like the sovereign will of God and the atonement of Jesus Christ, doctrines developed in many other passages outside of here. So if you zero in on verse 4 without considering other clarifying passages, especially from Paul's writing, you'll likely misinterpret this verse and misinterpret the heart of God. We don't want to do that. We want to be careful and think carefully. So we all need to submit to the full scope of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when studying the Bible, I have this frequently when, when uh, preparing for sermons, you come to a complex verse. You might not know what to do with that verse. You might not understand how it fits. And when you do, when you come to a complex verse, you must remember this important principle. It will serve you over and over again. Scripture interprets Scripture. Everybody say that. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's going to help you in in studying the Bible. The clearer passages of Scripture help us interpret the seemingly obscurer passages of Scripture. Now, earlier, I said that on the one hand, verse 4 isn't difficult to understand. Here's what I mean. And if you get nothing else from this sermon, get this one point. Okay? So if I lose you after this, just remember this and you're on safe ground. Okay? This is what I think Paul is primarily conveying in this verse to Timothy. God has a compassionate and evangelistic heart. That's it. Okay, God has a compassionate and evangelistic heart. He wants people to be saved, and he wants to save people. He wants people to leave the dark ignorance of their sin and to come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel by his grace alone. That's why Paul wrote, God our Savior. We're going to think hard here for a moment, for several moments, but I don't want you to lose sight of this very clear point. God has a compassionate and evangelistic heart and he wants us to pray with the same heart. But Paul was saying more. There are beautiful doctrines under the surface here and and they must be excavated. We must go to them. And and these doctrines might be new for you. Uh, So this might be a grueling sermon. It might be effort for you. It might challenge your thinking. But it will push you to know your Bibles and to think hard, which God will be faithful to help you do. Okay? And I'll admit, right from the start, I'm intimidated to preach this for several reasons. Number one, I have had a busy week. Number two, I had a hard time with this passage. And knowing how to organize the material and to communicate it in a helpful and concise way. This was a challenge for me. And three, I don't want your eyes to glaze over. All right? I, uh, these are complicated and precise doctrines, and they might be completely new for you. And so I run the risk of completely confusing you and losing you right from here on. And I, and I don't want you to check out. I don't want you to think that this is somehow, oh, yeah, pastors can understand that and those with degrees, but I'm just a common person. No, rebuke that. That's sin. All right. You can get this because the Holy Spirit will be kind to you 
The Holy Spirit is the best teacher. He wants you to know these things. So don't, it's not some upper level, okay? Hang with me. These are thrilling doctrines that reveal to us the heart and sovereignty and glory of God. So I'll trust the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do, to help you see the glory of God in this. Uh, I'm not sufficient for these things. Uh, I will fall short, but God's word never does, and my heart is to help you see the glory of God in his word. So if you have questions afterwards, if somehow I am completely unclear with something, which is likely, uh, talk to me about it, all right? And we'll work through this together, and we'll get the answers uh, that you so desperately crave. So I ask for grace, and I also ask for your very careful attention. Let's zero in on these few words. God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. What does that mean? Well, to start, God is the only Savior available. There is no other. Verse 5 advances that thought. There is one God and there is one mediator. There is only one Savior. But what does Paul mean that God desires all people to be saved? We need to answer two questions here. Number one, what does desires mean? And number two, what does all people mean? First of all, God desires that the gospel be proclaimed to everyone without exception. Everyone in a universal sense. Calvin said, quote, God wishes that the gospel should be proclaimed to all without exception, end of quote. God doesn't call us to proclaim to the, the gospel to everyone except those people. It is everybody without exception. The gospel is for everyone without exception. Second, last week we looked at the phrase, all people, and I concluded because of the context that Paul meant all kinds or types or groups of people like kings and people in high positions. Verse 4 seems to have the same meaning. Paul was likely referring to all people without distinction, not all people without exception. He could be speaking of all people in the universal sense, but that's unlikely. Why? Because as we'll see next week, all in verse 6 is the same meaning as all people in verse 1, all without distinction. Christ did not ransom every single person without exception because as Scripture teaches, there are many people who perish in their sin. So Christ is the effectual or effective ransom for all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile alike. We'll get into that more next week. There's another clue, though. Jump down to verse 7 and look carefully. Why does Paul mention the Gentiles in a discourse about salvation? Paul was a Jew. The false teachers of Ephesus were likely Jews abusing the law, perhaps linking salvation to a certain select group of Jews and to a, a, a certain Jewish rituals and ceremonies. You see, Christ commissioned Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so they would know that salvation is for them as well as it is for Jews. This is the sense of the phrase all people that we see in Acts 22 verse 15 where Paul would be a witness for Christ to all people and verse 21 clarifies that as the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the nations. 
So interpreting Paul to mean all people without distinction in verse 4 is consistent with Paul's commission from God and Christ. God does not make ethnic distinctions when it comes to salvation. That's a prominent truth throughout the entire New Testament. It is most probable then that when Paul wrote that God desires all people to be saved, he didn't mean all people without exception, but rather all types of people without distinction. That seems most logical and most contextual. Again, Calvin helpfully noted, quote, the apostle simply means that there is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation, end of quote. Dr. William Hendrickson added this, the expression all men here in verse 4 must have the same meaning as in verse 1. In a sense, salvation is universal. That is, it is not limited to any one group. Churches must not begin to think that prayers must be made for subjects, not rulers, for Jews, not for Gentiles. No, it is the intention of God our Savior that all men without distinction of rank, race, or nationality be saved, end of quote. This is a reasonable conclusion fitted to the context. So whatever fellow or desires may mean here, if all people means all types of people without distinction, then God clearly, please get this, has an indiscriminate heart to save. An indiscriminate heart to save. The gospel must go to all people without exception and will take effect for all people without distinction. This view is entirely consistent with the biblical doctrines of predestination, foreknowledge, election, and effectual calling, and it displays for us the beautiful, indiscriminate heart of God. Now, I'm going to press in a little bit here. How could we only care about the lost souls in Mannheim or Lancaster County when God has a heart for the nations? Racism is utterly foreign to the heart of God. Ethnocentrism is utterly foreign to the heart of God. Nationalism is utterly foreign to the heart of God. Why else would God instruct uh, his people to make disciples of all nations? We, we must be a church that longs for people we don't even know across the seas, the oceans, to know Christ, for His glory to reign supreme there as we desire it to reign supreme here. Our passion and our mission efforts as a church should be global, not just local, global. Now, it is possible that Paul changed his meaning from verse 1 and meant all people without exception. That is possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. So let's assume that for a moment, that Paul changed the meaning of all people here. Now, the exact nuance of the Greek word fellow or desires makes all the difference. The Greek word fellow can mean different things depending on the context. Haven't I said that a lot about different words? And this makes Bible study difficult because different words, it's not one meaning and that's what that word means. They tend to have nuances depending on the context. Fellow can refer to someone taking pleasure in something or finding something agreeable. 
It can mean to have a strong desire for something. It can mean to wish something or intend something or purpose something. It can refer to God's commanding and sovereign will or decree or choice. If fellow means that God wills or decrees all people without exception to be saved, it either means that everyone will be saved, which the Bible patently refutes and is the heresy of universalism, or that God wills or decrees things that other forces prevent from happening and never actually happen, which undermines the absolute sovereignty and effectual power of God. Both of those options are unacceptable. Many texts in Scripture render those interpretations indefensible. Stay with me. But what if fellow means that God has a strong desire for the salvation of everyone without exception? Is that possible? Well, it would elicit questions, no doubt, but would not necessarily undermine God's sovereignty and salvation. Stick with me here. We know from other passages that God calls out to everyone without exception to come to him by faith. And we know that God takes no pleasure, absolutely no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God beckons in Isaiah 45 verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Okay? Universal call of the gospel. God appeals to all without exception to repent and to trust him for salvation. It is a universal call of the gospel. Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32 say this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Then later, Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says, I have no pleasure in the death of, uh, death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And then you have John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God is not sadistic or fiendish. He, he, he doesn't sit back grinning as the wicked are destroyed by his righteous wrath and justice. Of course he loves justice. Of course he acts to uphold his justice. And in that sense, it pleases God to, to love justice and uphold justice and work justice. But he does not gloat when his justice destroys the wicked. In the heart of God is both justice and mercy. Wrath and compassion. So it can work to say God desires all people without exception to be saved. That being said, this does not negate that God does not decree, or that, yeah, God does not decree the salvation of all people without exception, nor does he actually sovereignly save all people without exception. You see, verse 4 must be reconciled with texts like Romans 9 Verses 22 and 23, which say this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? 
God prepares, according to His Word, God prepares some people as vessels of His wrath. He will destroy them. Why? Well, as this text said, in order to reveal the riches of His glory for the vessels that He has sovereignly prepared for His glory. I know this is complex. I know this is controversial. But when we read something like God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, it must be reconciled with other texts like Romans 9 and that takes careful study and that takes careful thinking. We should also remember Judas. The rebellion of Judas did not please God. God was not smiling when Judas betrayed his precious son. And yet scripture makes it clear that God willed or decreed the treachery and eventual destruction of Judas. Jesus prayed to God in John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Do you understand that? We should remember Esau from Malachi 1. We just a little bit ago saw this. God loved Jacob. God does not, did not love Esau. In fact, he hated Esau by rejecting him from the covenant blessings. God did not take pleasure in Esau's rebellion. God did not take pleasure in Esau's destruction, and yet God decreed his rebellion and destruction. Proverbs 16.4, listen very carefully to this. It says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Please listen carefully. Scripture is clear that God desires certain things that he does not will or decree. Let me try to explain that further by highlighting three ways that the Scripture talks about the will of God. We must consider these wisely as we interpret uh, verse 4. Number one, God's decretive will. God sovereignly decrees, or you could say predestines, whatever he wants, and it always comes to pass. Always. The cross is one example of that. God spoke creation, and it came to be. God speaks, and the dead live. God speaks, and the blind see. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So please hear this loud and clear. Nothing, 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 nothing can thwart the sovereign will of God. Number two, God's preceptive will. This is what God commands. He commands what pleases him. And though his creatures do not have permission to disobey his will, they do have the freedom to disobey his preceptive will. So in the preceptive sense, God's will is not always done. In the preceptive sense, because his commandments are not always obeyed. Did I lose you? Well, listen to the sermon again online. All right. Because this is what's coming out. All right, here we go. Third, God's dispositive will. This refers to God's 
attitude towards what pleases and displeases him. He is pleased when his children obey him. He is displeased when the wicked rebel against him. God has a sweet disposition towards good and a furious disposition towards evil. I would suggest that if Paul means all men without exception in verse 4, that the word desires refers to God's dispositive will. Now, you might be confused probably are. What Dr. R.C. Sproul said about this applies directly to verse 4. I think it will help you. Listen closely. The third way the Bible speaks of the will of God is with respect to God's will of disposition. This will describes God's attitude. It defines what is pleasing to him. For example, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, yet he most surely wills or decrees the death of the wicked. God's ultimate delight is in his own holiness and righteousness. When he judges the world, he delights in the vindication of his own righteousness and justice, yet he is not gleeful in the vindictive sense toward those who receive his judgment. God is pleased when we find our pleasure in obedience. He is sorely displeased when we are disobedient, end of quote. And I think that's right. So if Paul meant all people without exception, it seems fitting that desires refers to God's dispositive will, his attitude. And this would showcase his compassion. It would showcase his evangelistic heart. Now, to say verse 4 refers to God's decretive will, that he makes the choice and it absolutely happens, he brings it about, To say that's what verse 4 means may preserve God's compassion and evangelistic heart, but would at least undermine his sovereignty, power, control, and ability because he would desire something that he cannot otherwise bring about, and the worst case implies universalism. I know this is intense. This is probably the first time the majority of you are hearing any trace of this. Well, that's not true. You've heard other sermons of mine in classes that we teach which get you to this conclusion, but you might not make the the direct connection. I know it's intense. And you know what, folks? We're just scratching the surface. We're just scratching the surface. Yet all of it is important to understand the heart and the sovereignty of God. Now, in addition to wanting all people to be saved, God desires them to come to the knowledge of the truth which goes hand in hand with salvation. Salvation has an intellectual and a cognitive aspect. It has doctrines that absolutely must be believed. Religious pluralism says that all religions are equally true and valid. But the desire of God's heart is that people know the truth. The truth. One God, one mediator, one gospel. One salvation, pluralism nullifies evangelism. If all religions lead to God, if every path gets there, evangelism is completely pointless. Why would we do it? Religious pluralism scorns the heart of God, and yet we see many, many people all around us, in our society, in our culture, in our workplaces, in our families, who embrace religious pluralism in the name of tolerance and in the name of acceptance. In the name of some spurious love, which is not even love. Here's the heart of God. 
All right? I told you to remember one simple thing. If you got lost, do you remember what that is? God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Apart from Christ, we don't have that heart. God's heart is compassionate. God's heart is evangelistic. We don't have that heart, which brings us to the gospel in verses 5 and 6. We'll develop this next week more in detail. It's going to be heavy next week as well. So come with your thinking caps on, but it's important to mention now. So number two, I hope to show you what God has done through Christ who has the heart of God. Jesus Christ has the heart of God. He desires in full everything that God desires. Jesus Christ fulfilled God's decretive will, preceptive will, and entirely pleases his dispositive will. Verses five and six says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. More on this next week. But there is only one God. And that one God is the Savior of all people without distinction. That one saving God provided us one mediator to stand between him and us, the man, Christ Jesus, Our sin offended God, separated us from God, and made us enemies with God. But God sent his only son to be the peacemaker, to to bridge the gap between God and sinners by offering himself on the cross as our substitute and ransom. Jesus Christ paid our sin debt in full, absorbed the wrath of God intended for us, satisfied the justice of God on our behalf, and reconciled us to God of our one mediator, Jesus Christ, we are now at peace with God and and entirely free to enjoy a relationship with God and to live for God in all things. My friends, every time you are confronted with your sin and guilt, every time you feel like God cannot possibly accept you, knowing what you have done and what you do, you can remember that you have one perfect mediator standing between you and God, the man, Jesus Christ, and because of your union with Christ, God accepts you. God is pleased with you. He loves you. His disposition towards you is sweet. He will not treat us as as our sins deserve, because there is one who represents us and intercedes for us before the judgment seat of God. Whenever God looks at you, he does not see some sick and twisted and gross and ugly sinner who just can't do anything right. Whenever God looks at you, he looks through his son, Jesus Christ, the only mediator and the only hope that you have, and he sees a beloved and precious and beautiful child that he loves that he cares for, that he has saved because he wants to relate to and care for and provide for. The mediatorial work of Jesus Christ is everything for us. Without it, we're done. God did all of this to give you his heart through Christ. Last one. I want to, number three, show you that by trusting Christ, God will work to conform your heart to his. 
Let Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 sink in. Just marvel at the truth of what God has done. This is what God's grace produces in you and in me through Christ. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What magnificent grace. When our heart was stone, cold, Dead, unresponsive, God replaced it with a new heart and new desires. He put his heart in us. He put a new spirit in us to desire what he desires. And he works his obedience in us to do what he desires. That's his grace at work. Now, as children loved by God, we are free to desire to see all people saved, to pray for the lost with God's heart. Brothers and sisters, you have a new heart. You have new desires. Cling to Christ by faith. So that by his powerful grace in you, you may have compassion. You may have love for those who have offended you, abused you, slandered you, hurt you, and wronged you in unimaginable ways. In Christ, you are free to reject hatred. Free from any hatred or bitterness or resentfulness that takes your soul captive. You are free. Free to desire them to be saved so much so that you fall to your knees before an almighty God and you pray for their well-being and you pray for their salvation because you have the heart of God. The gospel works to rid you of anger, works to rid you of bitterness, works to rid you of revenge and gives you a heart after God's compassionate and evangelistic heart and you pray with that heart. That is what the gospel does. I'll end with this. A little logical thing maybe to to tie it together for you. Is it God's will that more sinners get saved and live to please God for his glory alone? Is that his will? Absolutely it is. It is his will. We could even say, of course, it is his will. So then, let us pray for the decreative, preceptive, and dispositive will of God to be done. Let us pray with God's heart. Father in heaven, I want your heart when I pray. My brothers and sisters want your heart when they pray. But God, our hearts so often are far from you. We have failed to have any compassion on lost souls. We have failed to have any evangelistic heart whatsoever. We don't care that people are going to hell. In fact, at one time, we didn't care that we were. And then by an explosion of your grace and truth and mercy in our lives, we came to see the supremacy of Christ in the gospel. 
and you gave us a new heart, a heart after yours. And so now it is so natural for us to care about the souls of lost people, people who don't know you. For your glory, we want people to know you so that worship happens in their heart where idolatry happened before. Oh, we want that to happen. We want people to know Christ so that we have another worshiper to join this amazing multitude of people to lift up and glorify and praise your name. And so, God, I pray with with your heart that you have given me by the Holy Spirit and my brothers and sisters can say the same thing. We pray for lost people. We pray for their salvation. We pray for their well-being. We pray that your sovereign grace will take effect as your word says it will in some, will take effect and save. We're praying it for everybody. You know who the elect are. We don't. So our prayers can be indiscriminate. We just want to pray for people who are lost so that your sovereign grace will fall and save your people. Christ, thank you for your heart that you have given us. And I pray that we will not look to our failures and shortcomings and sins, but we will fix our eyes on you and the heart that you give us. Oh, what union with you, Christ. Oh, what joy it is for us. And so, God, I pray that you do the work of your spirit. In any place where I have misspoken or been unclear, I pray that you help your people study this on their own. They need to do more than what their pastor feeds them. So help them to study your word and to discern these things deeply because they are very close to your heart. In Jesus' name and for the glory of our King and our prophet and our priest, we pray, amen.